All right, welcome back to Listener's Commentary on the Book of Acts. In this recording, we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 18, verses 1 through 22. It's the last major snapshot that Luke gives us of Paul's second missionary journey. The second missionary journey, as we've said, focuses on Macedonia and Greece. And so Paul focused on just three snapshots in Macedonia, Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. In our last recording, he looked at the first snapshot in Greece at Athens, and now we get this one here in Greece in the city of Corinth. And after the snapshot at Corinth, Luke is going to describe Paul simply sailing back to uh, the east coast of the Mediterranean, up to Jerusalem, and then back down to Antioch. And so this is the last major snapshot he gives us here on uh, the second missionary journey. And we know roughly the time period this happens because one of our fixed dates in Paul's life actually grows out of this story with the proconsul Gallio. We'll look at that in detail in a little bit. And so we've given kind of a, a rough date for the second missionary journey as of maybe late 50 through maybe 53, early 54. We're not sure exactly when. Uh, this particular story probably ends sometime in uh, 53, um, or uh, a little bit later than that. And then you have the trip back to Jerusalem. And so we're, we're approaching the end of the second missionary journey, and we're going to look at this city of Corinth and Paul's ministry there here in this story. Here's the way it begins. Acts chapter 18, verse 1 says, After these events, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And so in our last recording, we looked at now, Luke's brief description of what happened in Athens and how Paul uh, got to share at least a little bit about what he preaches before the ruling council in the city of Athens. And yet his ministry there didn't seem to merit a whole lot of fruit, maybe not even a, a full-blooded church. There just a handful of disciples. We're not really sure because we don't have tons of details there in Acts 17. But after what Luke describes there, Paul travels from Athens to Corinth. And Corinth is about 50 miles from Athens uh, along the Isthmus of Greece. And so uh, Athens is sort of northeast of Corinth. And Corinth, you have to kind of travel that little land bridge, the Isthmus, down uh, to the southwestern end of that, and you get to the city of Corinth. And uh, In the first century, Corinth was the capital uh, of the province of Achaia, or Greece, and it was in a lot of ways a major city in the first century, but it hadn't always been that way. Uh, historically, it had been sort of a leader of Greek resistance to the Romans, and as a result, it was decreed that the city of Corinth should be destroyed, and that destruction happened in 146 B.C., but it was eventually rebuilt by Julius Caesar in 44 B.C., and it was rebuilt and deemed a Roman colony. He settled about 3,000 freed slaves and veterans there in Corinth, and they rebuilt the city. They rebuilt some of the old destroyed buildings. They built plenty of new buildings. And because it had laid largely destroyed for a century, uh, it was sort of a unique city in the first century. There was no historical ruling class or aristocracy. And so it was sort of the city where it had this opportunity for upward social mobility in a way that a lot of the Greco-Roman cities did not. Um, it also, since it was rebuilt by Julius Caesar, 
and rebuilt as a Roman colony. It had a very Roman flavor. Roman law, Roman culture, Roman religion were dominant in Corinth. Even though it's the capital of Greece, uh, it was very much Roman in flavor, and Latin was the city's official language. Uh, By the time we get to Paul's day, Corinth is one of the top four or five cities in the empire. And we're not sure the exact size of the city in the first century, But we know from population numbers from the 2nd century how large it was. In the 2nd century, there were approximately about 300,000 citizens there and about 450,000 slaves in the city of Corinth. Um, That's huge. That's that's 750,000 people living in the city of Corinth. That's huge. Now, um, that's a century after our time period, and estimates are much smaller for the first century since it's a city on the rise, but it's still one of the top four or five cities in the empire, and it was an incredibly wealthy city because of its location. And positioned there as it was on that land bridge between mainland Greece and the Peloponnesus of Greece, it wasn't safe really to travel around the southern tip of Greece, to sail around that. In fact, a popular proverb of the day actually said that, uh, let him who thinks of rounding Cape Malia make his will because it was so dangerous to sail around that. And so what would happen is that uh, sailors and ships would come into either the, depending which direction they're sailing, either the eastern harbor of Corinth or the western harbor, and they would unload all their supplies and um, take them across to the other harbor, load them onto a new ship, and sail on. Or sometimes if the ship was not super large, they would actually pull the whole ship out of the water and drag it across uh, the isthmus to the other side and sail on. And so as a result of all of that, you had tons of trade and travel and traffic coming through the city of Corinth and thus commerce and trade made Corinth wealthy and had tons of people coming into the city. Not only did you have tons of commerce coming through the city, you had tons of people from various places around the empire, which meant you had lots of different ideas coming in to the city. And so it's this incredibly wealthy cosmopolitan city. And thus Corinth in a lot of ways was a crossroads city for traffic and for ideas in the ancient world. One of the products it was known for was bronze, a kind of bronze alloy, and Corinthian bronze was famous throughout the Mediterranean world. And not only that, Corinth also hosted the Isthmian Games, which was a biennial sporting event that uh, was second only to the Olympian Games in prestige. And so just a major important city. And so I can see as Paul comes to Corinth, there's this sense of which, man, if I could get the gospel situated here, who knows where it might go since ideas and people travel to and from Corinth all the time. And, and so this is an important strategic location for the gospel when Paul comes to Corinth. Not only was Corinth a major, growing, wealthy city, it had a reputation for being a debauched city as well. Now, some of those um, you know, descriptions are caricatures for sure. But as is often the case with important major harbor cities, and you, know, you have lots of sailors coming through, you're going to get some debauchery. And Corinth seems to have had uh, that sort of reputation and certainly that sort of experience to some degree or another. Um, 
It was famed for its temple of Aphrodite with its 1,000 priestesses. Uh, To play the Corinthian was a a saying in the first century world that meant to lead a debauched life. Um, In plays, a Corinthian was almost always portrayed as a drunk. Again, these are caricatures, but they begin to give you an idea because they grow out of something that this city was well known for just... Uh, debauchery and loose living. Corinth also had a large community of Jews who, because of their size and their prominence, actually had some sense of self-rule. They kind of governed a lot of their own affairs in the city, and that's going to play out in this story here in Acts chapter 18 as well. So Paul arrives in Corinth. In verse 2, when he arrived, he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. This is another important moment because uh, Aquila and Priscilla become friends with, and in some regards, co-workers of the Apostle Paul here in the city of Corinth in the year 51 AD. Um, Notice Aquila is from Pontus, which is um, up in northern modern-day Turkey. Um, But he and his wife have been living in Italy and have recently relocated to Corinth. And they recently relocated to Corinth because Claudius, the emperor, had commanded all Jews to leave Rome. Claudius had expelled all the Jews to leave Rome in the late 40s and early 50s, and he did so according to Roman historian Suetonius, who was the secretary to the emperor Hadrian. Hadrian was the Roman emperor from 117 to 138, and Suetonius was his secretary, so he had access to the Roman records. And this is what Suetonius says about this event that's mentioned here in the book of Acts. Suetonius says, because the Jews at Rome caused continuous disturbances at the instigation of Crestus, he, that is Claudius, expelled them from the city. This is interesting because it seems like Crestus is a Latin corruption of the Greek word Christos, Christ. And it may be that what precipitated this event of Claudius expelling the Jews from Rome was disturbances and tension in the synagogues and in the Jewish sector of Rome over the preaching of Jesus as Christ the Messiah. It's not totally clear, but that's what it seems like happened. Well, Aquila and Priscilla were two of those Jews living in Rome who were expelled from the city, and now they are living in Corinth, and Paul befriends them when he arrives there. So it says this, he came to them, And because he was of the same trade as they were, he stayed with them and they worked together for they were tent makers by trade. So Paul comes to Corinth. He ends up uh, working for his own room and board by uh, working with Aquila and Priscilla there in Corinth. They were all tent makers or probably better leather workers in uh, Corinth. So it seems that uh, they had some space for Paul to stay with them. And he did so uh, in their private quarters and then worked in their shop during the day as a way to pay for his own room and board. And again, this, as we've noted before, seems to be a regular habit of Paul. In fact, he mentions in, he did this in Thessalonica. He says in the First Thessalonians chapter 2, 9, that he worked for his own room and board. And he did so, he says there, 
to avoid being a burden to them and to provide them an example of how important it is to work hard and pay for your own keep. He also says in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, uh, verses 11 through 14, that he did this in, in order to um, not be accused of selling the gospel for profit, that he really didn't want to take money from his new churches when he first planted them and was first getting started there because he never knew how long he would be in town and he didn't want to be accused of selling the gospel for profit. And so Paul seems to have had this regular habit of uh, working for his own room board. So he's doing that. He he takes up residence with uh, Aquila and Priscilla, works in their leather shop while he's there in the city of Corinth. And then verse 4 says, And Paul was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. So he's working during the day um, in the leather shop in in uh, Corinth with Aquila and Priscilla. And on weekends, on Saturday, on the Sabbath, he's going to the Sabbath service and he's preaching Jesus and he's trying to teach people uh, and show them and persuade them from the scriptures that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. That's how his ministry in Corinth started. But verse 5 tells us things changed when Silas and Timothy finally arrived. You remember, Paul left Silas and Timothy behind in Macedonia when he left uh, Berea. And he's been waiting for them to rejoin him. And they didn't come when he was at Athens. And now he's in Corinth. And finally, they rejoin him here in verse 5. It says this, But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. Why the change when Silas and Timothy arrived? Well, the reason for the change is they actually brought an offering from Macedonia, from specifically Philippi. Philippians chapter 4 verses 15 or 14 and 15 tell us that they brought a gift down to him when they came. And not only Philippians says that, but 2 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 9 tells us the same thing. He says this, he says, I robbed other churches by taking wages from them to serve you. And when I was present with you and was in need, I was not a burden to anyone. For when the brothers came from Macedonia, they fully supplied my need. And in everything, I kept myself from being a burden to you and will continue to do so. This was Paul's approach to things. And so he worked for his own room and board until Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia. And then at that point, Paul could no, uh, give himself full time to the ministry. And so he began devoting himself completely to the word, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah, continuing that ministry and arguing and debating and reasoning from the scriptures, showing that Jesus is the Messiah. But, verse 6, when they resisted and blasphemed, Paul shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood is on your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And again, we've seen this before where Paul shook off his sandals uh, when he was leaving Iconium and Pisidian Antioch and things like that. This is the same sort of thing. It's a dramatic action to say, all right, I am free from you. I have given you my best. You're, as he says here, your blood is on your own heads. I'm not responsible for what happens to you at this point. I am clean. And he's going to focus on the Gentiles. He's done his work in the synagogue. He's done the best he could. And he's going to focus on the Gentiles. But what happens next, I have always found absolutely hilarious. Look at verse 7. He says this, Then he left the synagogue and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God, 
whose house was next door to the synagogue. So your blood is on your hands. I'm going to focus on the Gentiles. But he sets up shop right next door to the synagogue where he can continue to encourage Jews to come and learn about this Messiah named Jesus. Now, Paul's ministry in the synagogue was not without fruit. Look at verse 8. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, as they listened to Paul, were believing and being baptized. Uh, So the synagogue leader, the synagogue ruler, who could be a wealthy patron who supported the synagogue uh, with his money and gifts, um, oftentimes was the one who was in charge of the synagogue services. And so Crispus actually became a follower of Jesus. And in fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 14 mentions that Crispus was one of the few people that Paul himself personally baptized. They were baptizing people there in the city of Corinth, it says. But Crispus himself was one that Paul baptized personally. Other people were baptized by Silas or Timothy or maybe some of the new believers there in the city of Corinth. So the ministry is having an impact. People are coming to faith in Jesus and are being baptized. But it's been difficult from the get-go. It's been hard. And so at this point here in verse 9, And 10, Luke uh, records a little episode where Jesus himself appears to Paul in a vision in the night and really provides some encouragement to him. Look what happens, verse 9. And the Lord said to Paul, by a vision in the night, do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many people in this city. And this is fascinating. This lets us know a little bit about what's going on with Paul. Notice, do not be afraid any longer. Like, uh, there's a certain sense in which it sounds as if, man, things were rough. The city's huge. Um, There's opposition from the get-go. His ministry, you know, through the whole second missionary journey has been difficult and hard. And it sounds like Paul was a little shook up about things and he needed this reassurance from the Lord to really encourage him to continue with the ministry. Well, we get a little insight into this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 3. There, Paul describes his ministry in Corinth this way. He says, I was also with you in weakness and fear and in great trembling. And so Paul arrives in Corinth after couple of years of difficult ministry, beaten with rods in Philippi, uh, chased out of Thessalonica, chased out of Berea, um, little fruit in Athens, right? And it's just been a difficult couple of years of ministry. He comes to Corinth, this massive city, um, and it sounds like there's he's just afraid, and he's struggling, and he's uh, weak, and The Lord honors that by giving him this reassuring vision and tells him, don't be afraid, go on speaking, don't be silent, for I am with you. And that's the heart of the reassurance. I'm with you. No one will attack you to harm you, for I have many people in the city. There's many people that will come to faith in me if you'll continue preaching. And so, verse 11, Paul took the message to heart. And verse 11 says, he settled there for a year and a half, a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. And so Paul puts down roots and decides to stay there long term, again, because of the the importance of Corinth. If he can get the gospel established there, it's a major city and who knows where the gospel might spread out from there. So he's going to put down some roots and he's going to stay there for a while. He's going to stay there for a year and a half and preach the gospel to them. 
one important little detail to note is that during that year and a half, while Paul is there, Paul writes two of his letters during this time. He writes First and Second Thessalonians back to that church at Thessalonica that he started just a handful of months earlier and didn't get to spend a whole lot of time with. And so he writes to them to really kind of help establish them and ground them in the truth of the gospel during this year and a half while he's in Corinth. Now, interestingly enough, the Lord gave him this reassuring vision. No one's going to attack you to harm you. And the very next scene in verse 12 is people attacking Paul to try to harm him. But look what happens. Verse 12. Now, while Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews rose up together against Paul and brought him before the judgment seat saying, and we'll look at the charges in a second, but let's just hit a few details. It's Gallio that uh, this moment gives us kind of a fixed date on Paul's life in New Testament chronology, because we know exactly when Gallio was the proconsul of Achaia. He was only the proconsul there for a one-year period, and that period was from July of 51 to June of 52. And my guess is that uh, this event probably happens fairly early on in Gallio's proconsulship. It's like, let's try out the new guy and see uh, how he's going to respond to this. That's my suspicion, though we don't know for sure. So at some point during that year that Gallio was the proconsul of Achaia, um, some of the Jews there in the city rose up against Paul. They brought him before the judgment seat. Notice that phrase. The judgment seat is the Bema seat. Um, Paul plays off of that in his letter to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, when he says, For we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ to be repaid for the deeds done in the body, whether good or bad. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. And it's the same phrase, judgment seat. And so Paul's experience in Corinth of being brought before the, the Bema seat, the judgment seat in the forum, Paul uses that for imagery for we're all going to stand before the Bema seat of Jesus and be judged for what we've done in the body. And so they bring him into uh, the forum before the judgment seat of the proconsul. They bring him before uh, Gallio himself and they say, this man is inciting people to worship God contrary to Luke's summary of the charges is, of course, very brief and very general, but because uh, Corinth is a Roman colony. They are appealing to really Roman imperial law uh, about you know not converting people uh, to Judaism or to new religions, and so essentially implying that Paul is teaching an illegal religion. Now Paul is about to speak in his defense, verse fourteen, and look what happens. When Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews. If it were a matter of some crime or vicious, unscrupulous act, O Jews, it would be reasonable for me to put up with you. But if there are questions about teaching and persons and your own law, see to it yourselves. I'm willing, unwilling to be a judge of these matters. And he drove them away from the judgment seat. Now, remember, there is a large uh, population of Jews in the city of Corinth, and they were given the right of self-rule for their own kind of their own things. And that's what Gallio is saying. Like, this is really a, this is a Jewish debate. This isn't a Roman legal debate. Even though you're trying to tie it into Roman law, this is really about um, teachings and persons and your own Jewish law. You guys see to it. That's for you to decide. That's the way we're doing things here in Corinth. And he tosses the case out of court. 
He throws it out and literally says, okay, gets his bailiffs, move them away from the judgment seat. I'm going to deal with more important matters. And he tosses the, the case out of court. This is critical and important really for the future of Christianity because now here is a Roman proconsul essentially saying that Christianity is considered legal. It's, it's, it's a kind of a sect within Judaism. It's a matter of Jewish law. It's not going against Roman law. And now it gives Christianity sort of legal credentials in other cases like this throughout the empire. And so this is really, really important. How do the Jews respond to this? Well, look at verse 17. They took hold of Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, and began beating him in front of the judgment seat. And yet Gallio was not concerned about any of these things. Again, this is fascinating. We already saw the previous leader of the synagogue, Crispus, become a believer in Jesus, be baptized, and now is a follower of Jesus. Well, here's the new leader of the synagogue, Sosthenes. Um, and the Jews are beating him right there in front of the judgment seat. Gallio just turns a blind eye to it. And it raises the question, why are they beating Sosthenes? And I can't prove this. I don't know for sure. But if you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1, Sosthenes is mentioned there as a follower of Jesus. There's no reason to think it's a different Sosthenes. It's likely the exact same one. And it makes me wonder if part of the reason the Jews were beating Sosthenes in front of Gallio is because they, they may have felt like he was sympathetic to the, uh, the believers in Jesus. He was sympathetic to Paul uh, because maybe he was already leaning towards becoming a believer and they felt like he didn't argue the case strong enough. Now, I'm speculating, I'm guessing we don't know for sure, but it is fascinating that 1 Corinthians 1.1 mentions Sosthenes when Paul writes to the Corinthians. After that bit, Luke gives a generic summary of the remainder of Paul's time in Corinth and then his trip uh, to the east. And so he says this in verse 18. Now, Paul, when he had remained many days longer, took leave of the brothers and sisters and sailed away to Syria and Priscilla and Aquila were with him. And so Paul sails from Corinth and he's going to sail to the east with the ultimate goal of being Syria, meaning the east coast where he started from. And Priscilla and Aquila, they pack up shop and they go with him as well. And Paul first had his hair cut at Sincrea, for he was keeping a vow. And so Paul travels from Corinth to the harbor town of Sincrea. And so Sincrea is the harbor town to the east of Corinth. And he's going to be sailing east. So they, they travel that town. And Paul gets a haircut there because he's keeping a vow. We're not told exactly the details of this. Uh, but our best guess is it's a Nazarite vow because that was the Jewish vow that entailed not cutting your hair for a, a period of time, for the length of the vow. And so Paul, it seems, decided while he was in Corinth to take a Nazarite vow as a demonstration of his devotion to God, um, perhaps because the Lord gave this reassuring vision to him. And he's like in his commitment to honor the Lord's will and stay put there, even though he was afraid he takes a vow, perhaps. That's what it seems like. He's taking most likely a Nazarite vow, uh, which meant don't cut your hair for the length of the vow. Now that the vow is over and he's leaving Corinth, he has a haircut at Sincrea. And from there, he's going to sail to the east. And so they board a ship in Sincrea and verse 19, they sail eastward. And the first city they stop over at is Ephesus. 
they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. Um, meaning he left Priscilla and Aquila there. They're going to stay behind in Ephesus um, and perhaps do some ministry there because Paul wants to go there. Remember, at the beginning of the second missionary journey, he wanted to go to Asia. Ephesus is the key city in Asia. The Spirit of Jesus didn't let him. Well, now he comes to Ephesus. He stops there for a short time. He's going to leave Priscilla and Aquila there. He for his part, middle of verse 19, he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with some Jews. So he stayed there for a short time in Ephesus. Um, he spoke to the Jews, reasoned with them, preached there. He leaves Aquila and Priscilla there to do some work uh, while he's away. Verse 20, when they asked him to stay for a, a longer time, he did not consent, but he took leave of them and said, I will return to you again if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. And so he does a little bit of ministry in Ephesus. They want him to stay longer. He's on his way to Jerusalem uh, to complete his vow by bringing his hair to the altar and burning it on the altar, right? This is a voluntary vow. Uh, and so he's going to do that, check in with the church in Jerusalem, and then he's going to head down to ascending church in Antioch. And he does want to come back to Ephesus if the Lord wills. And so he says, I'll return if the Lord wills. And on the third journey, he will return. And this is going to be the focus of his, uh, his ministry there. On the third journey will be the city of Ephesus. But for now, he set sail from Ephesus. In verse 22, he sails all the way to the east. And when he landed at Caesarea, he went up to Jerusalem. So he travels inland up to Jerusalem, greeted the church in Jerusalem, spent a little bit of time there. And then from there, he went down from Jerusalem back uh, to Antioch 300. And with that, not only do we wrap up this scene, but we wrap up the entire second mission. And as I said, as we walked through this story, I think really the central part of this story is that moment where Gallio tosses this case out of court because it, it enables Christianity to be considered legal. A Roman provincial governor uh, essentially says no, there is no legal claim to your crime, and it gives now legal credibility to the gospel message and the preaching of Jesus. And one of the things this little snapshot then tells us and reminds us of is God's provincial care. Paul arrives in Corinth in fear and weakness and trembling, he says in to the Corinthians, right? He's obviously afraid and the Lord appears to him and reassures him. And no, I've got many people in the city. When the Jews do try to attack him to harm him and bring him before the governor, the governor tosses the case out of court. And what it shows us is that, that God provided real providential care to Paul, uh, that God wanted to see uh, the ministry and the gospel get rooted there in Corinth. And he helped Paul do that. And even though it was difficult and it was scary and it was hard and there was some danger, uh, God watched over Paul, reassured Paul, and indeed helped the gospel get rooted and uh, planted there in the city of Corinth. And really, we see this throughout the whole second missionary journey. God called Paul over to Macedonia through that vision in a night from Troas. And the whole thing has been difficult and hard and challenging. And yet, at the end of the second missionary journey, which we arrive at at this point, now we have gospel churches all throughout Macedonia and Greece ready to spread into surrounding towns and surrounding villages from the cities in which Paul has planted them. And so God, even though it was difficult, God provided real help and real care to the Apostle Paul. And at this point, Christianity is now considered legal due to God's help.